Amen. You may be seated. I invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, we'll be looking at this chapter for the third time, looking at verses 20 through the end of the chapter, verse 28. Few things are uh, a better illustration of anticipation than a child who's been told they're on their way to Disneyland. As you think about that as a, in, in the, you know, remember yourself being a child and thinking about the, the possibility of going and anticipating that. There's excitement. And yet, we had season passes one, one year. And, um, and I noticed this by the end of the day, no matter what day we went, no matter how often we went, by the end of the day, there were fewer places where you would hear more whining and complaining <laughs> from those same children that anticipated this would be the best day of their life. Um, life is full of examples like that, isn't it? Where, where reality is not quite as great as our expectations. It doesn't live up to our expectations that we have set for that experience or for that goal. We have these goals. We spend so much energy trying to achieve them. And then when it finally arrives, there's just this great letdown. Oh, this is it? That's what we've been building up towards? It's difficult, I think, to imagine the expectation that Jews had for their Messiah, right? And then, and then just the, the disappointment they, they met with when he arrived. When the authorities became the recipients of Jesus' harshest criticisms, right? They're, they were not honoring the Lord. Uh, they were not faithful to him. They were whitewashed tombs. They were hypocrites. When they received that kind of criticism from their Messiah, it's easy to understand why they convinced themselves that he was someone else. He couldn't be the Messiah. The Messiah wasn't going to act like that. So the appearing of a, of a suffering servant who, was, who comes on the scene to, to give his life to die instead of overthrow Rome... That would be like a child anticipating Disneyland, but at the end of the day, just being filled with disappointment. And Jesus simply didn't meet their expectations. So Hebrews is about the superiority of Jesus. It's reminding his readers that Jesus is, is better than everything that preceded him. And after comparing Christ to Melchizedek earlier in this chapter, now the author shows how Christ surpasses the Levitical priesthood. And so we find in Jesus a better hope. That's what we looked at last time, last week. We find in him a better hope because he ushers us into a better covenant, right? a new covenant. And so this audience had already made their profession of faith in Jesus. Look back with me, and this is by way of review. We'll consider just a few passages prior. So go back to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. It says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? 
It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. Right? So they have heard, and they have attested, or they, they have listened to this message, this gospel message. And then verse 4, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So they've witnessed, they've not, not only heard the gospel, they've witnessed the impact of the gospel within their community. Then look at chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. So there he's saying it's, it's our confession. It's the confession that all of us agree with. And then look at chapter 4, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Let us hold fast our confession. So that's the, their profession of faith. He's acknowledging that they have confessed these things already, and now he's elaborating on that. It's apparent, though, right, from this argument as we've made our way to this point and the numerous warning passages, some of which we've already read, we'll have more uh, coming in the latter half of the letter. It's apparent that they've begun to veer off course from that confession. Right? Or at least they're, they're very tempted to. The author is, is aware of this because he spends a third of his time on this topic in this letter, which we've called the sermon. The author has to spend so much time on Christ's priestly office because he's concerned that they are looking for other mediators, that they're, they're looking, whether it's to somehow find religion in the cultural norms of, of the society or whether it's returning back to the temple. In some way, they, have, they are departing from what they have confessed previously. Maybe they're questioning the efficacy of Christ's death or the sufficiency of his death. They need to, you know, oh no, we're not rejecting Jesus. We're just adding to it. We recognize that, that his death alone isn't sufficient. It's not adequate. Maybe they're just uncertain about how they're to participate in worship under the new covenant. They think still that some of the old ways are still valid and, and useful as mediators to commune with God. So we'll see his argument here as he clarifies these things. And if we do not view Jesus Christ as the only mediator of the covenant of grace, then we will search in vain for any alternative. But we can rest completely in our salvation because our savior perfectly represents us before god in heaven and when we when we trust in christ fully he represents us perfectly he saves us to the uttermost as the author will will, will phrase it he he saves us completely so let's ask for his help before we read this passage heavenly father we do thank you for your word and we thank you that we we have not only understood it, but that we have believed these things and we have rested in them. We've trusted in them as we considered our justification in Sunday school this morning. May this complement that thought as we reflect upon our faith. 
Lord, as we seek to be strengthened in that faith, equipped, in fact, for those days where we are tempted to go astray, tempted to return to some, something else, something worldly, something other than Christ, which none of it will bring the satisfaction that we find in him alone. Lord, help us to be satisfied. Help us to recognize that we have peace with you through your son and that your spirit has brought us here so that we might be under your word, learning and growing. And we ask that you might give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to, be, to believe this truth, to be softened, to respond in obedience, that you might be glorified. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. So read with me Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 20. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were made in, were many in number because they were prevented from death or by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through, fit, through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Amen. This is God's holy word. So the first point in your outline is Jesus is our security. Verses 20 and 22. The author here, um, he's earlier acknowledged that all high priests are called by God. He said that in Hebrews 5, 4, that, that all high priests received their calling from God. They didn't, they didn't appoint themselves to that. Right? They weren't elected by, by the congregation. They were called by God. Um, but here it, he acknowledges that it, there was still a distinction that they were not confirmed by an oath. Right? It was sort of it was the, the law that was established, the, the Levitical law that governed the priesthood, told them right, that, that, that how God would appoint priests and high priests. But it wasn't including an oath. So the author now suggests, he's not suggesting anything improper about the Levitical priesthood, that there wasn't an oath, right, in terms of those rules that governed its operation. But he is elaborating on ways that it was inferior to the priestly office of Jesus. He's, he's saying there's something greater, there's something more important, which is why God has attached an oath to it, a promise. And there's a superiority recognized for the one of whom God attaches 
an oath on, to his calling. In verse 21, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Go back to the beginning of the verse. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. All right, this is clearly a messianic psalm, Psalm 110, verse 4. He's referenced it multiple times, but here for the first time, he includes the phrase that comes before it. He's, he said the latter half of this in the verse, you are a priest forever after the order, order of Melchizedek, but here he wants to emphasize the, the former part of the verse. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You see, that language makes this priesthood superior. Jesus is not only promised to hold his priestly office, he was not only promised to hold that office, but he was promised that he would uniquely hold it forever, that it wouldn't end. There was no parting him from his office at any point. Those who take an oath are committing themselves to fulfill their promise or to face whatever stipulations have been outlined ahead of time. So this is covenant language. It implies a significant shift away from the Levitical law that governed the priesthood. It's acknowledging here from this psalm that in the future this will take place. Right, This priest will be forever unlike what the law tells you. And so they knew this was a significant shift in the covenant. And it makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. How? How does it do that? Well, this term, this language translated guarantor, it's the only time you have, have this word in the New Testament. The King James Version translates as a surety, and that's how you find it in the Confession of Faith as well as the Catechisms. We've talked about this as well in Sunday School, this idea of a surety. Um, it's, it's someone who's willing to, to pay the debt of someone else. Right? It indicates the assurance of a promise or the acceptance of responsibility on behalf of someone else, involves pledging your resources or even your life on behalf of another. So here, what's he referring to as a surety? He's referring to the security that believers have in covenant with Jesus. Charles Wesley's song, Arise, My Soul, Arise, how does he put it? He says, before the throne, my surety stands. Why? because my name is written on his hands. Before the throne, my surety stands. And so Jesus stands in our place. He paid the penalty for our debt, the debt of our sin, and it cost his life, his death on the cross. This is also the first time we see the word covenant in Hebrews. It's the first time the author mentions the word covenant. It'll occur another 16 times after this. So it becomes an important theme in the rest of the letter. But the author's making a point here that believers find their greatest sense of covenantal security in the Messiah, whose priestly appointment was accompanied by an oath. And so it might be helpful to think about that security that we have in Christ as, as a lifeguard who rescues a drowning person. Have you ever seen someone trying to save themselves? Maybe you've seen this at a, at a pool or out at the beach or something, and, and they're, they're drowning, or they, they're calling out, but, but they're trying to save themselves. 
if someone goes out there without anything in their hands, they just go out to try to save them, they're actually putting themselves at a great risk because the person who's drowning is just flailing about and they're going to grab onto anything that they can latch onto. And so if that's you, you're going to be drugged down as they try to lift themselves up above the water. And so there are plenty of examples of this, people dying, trying to rescue and save someone else who's drowning. And so the best thing a lifeguard can do is to keep their distance until the person calms down or to obviously throw them something, throw them a, a buoy, throw them a, a, you know, something that they can use, to some floating device that they can hold on to and then come, on, come up behind them and, and drag them out. See, oftentimes we're like that spiritual person who's drowning. We're flailing about. We know we cannot save ourselves, but we find ourselves latching onto those people or things that, that cannot bring ultimate peace. And so we need to hear, most of all, the gospel that rescues us. It teaches us to rest in the rescuer, that we cannot save ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be flailing about, spiritually endangering ourselves and everyone else around us. So we trust in the only one who has the power to carry us to safety, and that's Jesus. Christ alone maintains that peace that we have with God, and, and this is his priestly office. This is why he stays in this. It's not that he just acted as priest while he was on the cross, and then he's done. His job is done. That would indicate that that's all we needed was justification, but we need that sanctification. We need his help in every aspect of salvation until we reach glory. We need him to remain our intercessor, seated at the right hand of the Father. And so every other priest is inferior to Christ because all of them relate to God through that expired covenant. Not only do Levitical priests provide less security, their access has been eclipsed and overridden by the superior mediator who's come onto the scene. If Jesus then is the guarantor of a better covenant, then he provides something that every other priest lacked. And we can only have an assurance of our faith through Christ. He is the one who has established peace that we enjoy with God. Therefore, Christ alone is able to maintain that peace. And so we never go beyond Jesus. We learn to become all the more dependent upon him as our priest. Now, this becomes more prevalent when our faith is being tested when it's being challenged, when we're being tempted by the world or the flesh or the devil. When we feel like our soul are, is in jeopardy of hell or we're overly concerned about earthly affairs. Whether that leaves us paralyzed in fear or anxiously striving to earn our salvation, flailing about in the process. We need to be reminded that Jesus is our security. And Jesus is the thing that we must cling to. Samuel Stone says it well in the church's one foundation. He says, mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, speaking of the church, she waits the consummation of peace forevermore. Till, the vision, till with the vision glorious, her longing eyes are blessed and the great church victorious 
shall be the church at rest. Yet she on earth hath union with God, the three in one. So notice it's talking about the church victorious, resting in glory. And it's, so it's a future peace that awaits. It's something we look forward to. It's, that, it's receiving that inheritance. But then it says, yet, that's, that's it in the future. Yet she on earth hath union with God, the three in one, and mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. And those who have already gone into glory. We enjoy sweet communion with them as well. O oh, happy ones and holy. Lord, give us grace that we, like them, the meek and lowly, on high may dwell with thee. So there's a sense in which corporate worship unites us with the universal church, the invisible church, who's already entered into that rest. We're united with them, singing these songs of praise to our God. And so we are as secure as if we were dwelling with them in glory. Now, Jesus is our security because he's also our Savior, and that's what we find in this next section, verses 23 through 25. Jesus is our Savior. And it mentions, it begins here in verse 23 with the number of the many priests, right? The former priests. These Levitical priests were many because they couldn't perform their duties after death. That seems pretty obvious, doesn't it? Why, why is he pointing this out? Priests died because they were still subject to the power of sin. Their sin or the sinlessness of Jesus is then expressed in the next section, but the author begins here by pointing out that former priests died. Their lives were not indestructible, as he's already said of Jesus in verse 16. So it's an elaboration on the weakness of the former commandment that the, this Levitical law, this Levitical priesthood, he called it a former commandment in verse 18. And so Jesus, on the other hand, he conquered death and is therefore able to remain in his priestly office forever. This is obviously, it's following along the same point we've just made in, in the previous section, verses 20 to 22. This is the only way that the priest, after the order of Melchizedek, could remain in his office. It fulfills, or it's fulfilled in Jesus' resurrection. Psalm 110, verse 4, is pointing to that resurrection. And Jesus is always ready to mediate between God and man. He's able to completely save, save to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him. Verse 25. He's saying that Jesus saves comprehensively. And he does so for eternity. Right? This is the same point that Paul makes in Romans 8, verse 34. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So Christ Jesus is the one who gives us access to that throne of grace. He is interceding on our behalf. Intercession was a role that Israel's high priest practiced on the Day of Atonement when they wore the name of the 12 tribes of Israel entered into the Holy of Holies, offering a sacrifice on, uh, on behalf of their own sin and then offering a sacrifice of sin on behalf of the people. Exodus 28 speaks of those, that breast piece that they had that which, upon which all the, the names 
of the 12 tribes were also represented. So they represented the people before God. Jesus not only saves comprehensively, but he also intercedes for us continually. One of the reasons our mediator had to take on human nature was in order to, to suffer and intercede in our nature. That's how the larger catechism, question 39, puts it. Only, only then could we receive adoption as sons and gain access to the comfort that is available at the throne of grace. And so if Jesus provides that complete salvation and if he becomes our permanent mediator, then two things are implied by that, two grave errors that we need to acknowledge and avoid. First, it's that no one else can be an intercessor for us, whether that be a saint, whether that be Mary, whether that be some other idol proposing to intercede on your behalf. That would be a serious slight against Jesus to pray such a thing. Jesus died to save us, and he alone grants us access to God. And so it's idolatrous and it's blasphemous to approach God through anyone or anything else. Now, secondly, another error to avoid is to think that, that Jesus is interceding on our behalf because the Father's reluctant to receive us. Uh, there's this implication maybe that the Father, the Father would, would just destroy us, wants nothing to do with us, but, if, but we've got Jesus standing there just pleading, crying out to him forever. Now, I like how H.B. Sweet puts it. He says that our Lord intercedes at, at the throne as a priest king, asking what he will from a father who always hears and grants his request. The son perfectly reflects the will of the father. Romans 8.32, Paul says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? not reluctantly give us all things. He didn't withhold his son. He will graciously give us precisely what his son is asking us to receive. And so Jesus provides us with the security we need as our savior because he became our substitute. That's what we see in verses 26 through 28. There's really five ways in this in verse 26 that Jesus is better than the Levitical priests. It says he's holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Just briefly break down each one. It says holy. Now this term can refer to humans. It does in Titus chapter 1, verse 8. And yet Jesus is the embodiment of holiness. Perfect holiness such that he's the fulfillment of David's reference to the Holy One in Psalm 16.10. We see a reference to that being fulfilled in Jesus in Acts 2.27 and Acts 13.35. He is holiness itself. He's also innocent, meaning he doesn't deceive others. There's no guile within our Savior. He's open and honest. And he's unstained, meaning he's pure, undefiled from the world. And in that sense, he's separate from sinners. So Jesus came, he dwelt among us, but he did not succumb to our temptations 
in the flesh, right? He, he remained perfectly holy, innocent, and unstained in human flesh. And this is precisely why he could become our substitute. And then he was exalted above the heavens. Once again, another reference to his resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father to be our intercessor. And so each of those descriptions sets Jesus apart from the former priests who were sinful. Thus, they had to offer sacrifices on behalf of themselves first. Stated specifically in verse 27. Jesus, on the other hand, offers up himself once as a perfectly holy sacrifice. So he, can, he, he concludes this chapter, this section, the way he began with a reference back to the oath that God had made when appointing his son as high priest. One of you asked a good question a few weeks ago, asking in what sense will Jesus remain our high priest, right? It says he's a priest forever. Well, in what sense does he remain our high priest after his return, after we enter into glory? His intercessory work will not be necessary in glory since believers will be made perfect in holiness. But on the other hand, Jesus' intercession is essential in our present life. And we'll always acknowledge and recognize and give him the praise for what he has done, how he preserved us in this life. The Shorter Catechism 25 puts it this way. It says, Christ executes the office of a priest in his once offering up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. Christ's sacrifice satisfies divine justice and then he continues to remind his father of that through continual intercession on our behalf. He continues to represent us to his father. The confession, chapter 17, section 2, says that this perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the father upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ. The abiding of the Spirit and the seed of, of God within them and the nature of the covenant of grace from all which ariseth also the certainty and infallibility thereof. So we talk a lot about the sufficiency and the efficacy of the cross and the merit of Christ, but how often do we reflect upon our need for that ongoing intercessory work of our Lord and Savior? We often think of that intercessory prayer, you know, interceding on behalf of others. We, we think about how we fulfill that by, by lifting up our loved ones, our friends who ask us to pray. So we learn of a prayer request and we lift up that person to God in prayer. In that sense, we're interceding on their behalf. So what's the confession saying when it argues that the perseverance of the saints depends upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ? It, it means that we remain in the covenant with God because Jesus remains a perfect representative for us. Because Jesus is our security, our savior, and our substitute, we can rest assured that he will bring us all the way home. Let's thank him.
for that work. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessings of redemption. Lord, we are grateful that we have a Savior who hasn't just done the work and then left us to ourselves to figure out how to apply that work in our lives. But our Savior promises to continue to apply that work, to be our intercessor, to give us that access to the throne of grace so that in this life we might continue to be strengthened, to be reminded of his sacrifice on our behalf. Lord, even as we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, we pray that that might be a means of your grace reminding us of these things. And that as we commune with you, we would acknowledge our communion with the church, invisible and universal. What a remarkable gift we have. May we not take it lightly, but may we come with reverence and joy to honor you and to receive your good gifts for us, even as we've received Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand as we sing our hymn of response, O Great God. You'll find the lyrics to this hymn in your outline or in your, hand, your music insert.